are listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond, and this is RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. This is Melissa. I'm Jesse. And Francesca. And welcome to the April 11th edition of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania with a special guest appearance from the Quick and Dirty City Council Roundup. This week we have Omari Al-Qaddafi, organizer with Leaders of the New South, with us to discuss the current public housing crisis in Richmond. In the city of Richmond, 24.6% of residents lived in poverty in 2015. With a population of 220,000, that means over 50,000 people in the city live below the federal poverty line. Today, about 10,000 people live in public housing. So during this discussion about public housing, it is important to remember that this is not an all-encompassing discussion about poverty. Public housing in Richmond began being pushed as an idea in the 1930s the Public Works Administration and was labeled slum clearance. Public housing began being built in the 1940s and continued over the next several decades. The apartments built were being advertised as model Negro apartments. Today, there are six large public housing developments with about 10,000 residents. Since that time, very little of the original public housing project buildings have been demolished or renovated. For several years, Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority, or RRHA, and the public housing communities have been in the news headlines for numerous reasons, ranging from mismanagement, violence, lack of adequate facilities, and more. So far in 2018, there's been a major heat crisis where many apartments lacked heat during a severe winter. Calls for the RRHA CEO T.K. Samanoff to resign, T.K. Samanoff's ultimate resignation, and a settlement of a class action lawsuit in favor of residents against RRHA. More recently, Richmond City Health District participated in the Power of Home campaign. This is a new campaign for the National Health Week that ran April 2nd to 8th and focuses on fighting stereotypes of those living in public public housing in low-income communities. In addition to local news coverage and the presidents of the tenant council speaking at city council, a New York Times article was published about the high rate of evictions in Richmond City. So this brings us to the present. We're here today with Omari of Leaders of the New South. I'm going to let Omari introduce himself, but he's been somebody who's been working behind the scenes in various social justice and equity movements in the Richmond community through all of this. So first of all, thank you for joining us today, Omari. Thank you. Can you get started by introducing yourself to our listeners? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Omari El Qaddafi. I'm a native Richmonder. I do uh, advocacy in Richmond around uh, housing, transportation, and food access. And I generally do a lot of organizing and mobilization of the community to address policies and practices that might be oppressive to the communities that have been historically uh, disenfranchised in the city of Richmond. Thank you. First of all, thank you for your work. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We're, we're fans. Yeah, well, I, we appreciate your work also. <laughs> you know, you guys have been some of the more highlighted uh, independent media that's been um, helping some of the advocacy in the past year, and we really appreciate that. Happy to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Big heart. Uh, so I guess we can get started, first of all. You know, let's talk about the most recent kind of information that's been coming out right now. There was an article in the New York Times about evictions in Richmond, and I believe that you were with the author when you were originally writing around. So we could start talking about that and maybe some of the other coverages and some of the problems that come from that? Sure. A, a housing lawyer that um, is a, an ally of mine in the city had uh, given my name to uh, the journalist uh, Emily Badger with the New York Times uh, because she was aware of a lot of the work that I had been doing in the city and uh, was a supporter, is a, is a supporter of mine. And um, so I got in contact with uh, Miss Badger and I basically, you know, took her around the city and had her speak to people who are actually impacted by evictions. Uh, I linked her up with a, a few of the elected officials that had done some work with me in housing before. Uh, um, uh, the mayor uh, and uh, Councilman Agalasto and uh, a couple of other uh, uh, officials in the city. Yeah, she and 
I also have been through an eviction in the city, and uh, I have friends that have also been through eviction. It's something that I've been helping residents with for a couple years now. Um, and Emily took me around, Ms. Badger took me around the city, and we just talked to a lot of the tenants, various tenants. Uh, some tenants were in public housing, some were uh, voucher recipients from the housing authority, and others were just, just residents of low-income housing in the city. There, there was quite a bit of uh, the tenants who were actually in public housing that uh, that she spoke with. And, um, you know, that's just because of a lot of the advocacy work that I've been doing has been in public housing. You, um, you spoke on it earlier, some of the stuff that was involved with uh, the past uh, CEO, uh, T.K. Somina, uh, with the heating crisis and whatnot. So I've been remaining in a, a lot of constant contact with a lot of the tenants. So are they continue to reach out to me so I was able to work with them and get them in contact with the uh, journalists. So something that stood out to me in the article, it, it was really the small dollar amount that people are being evicted for. I think a lot of people think that these are huge dollar amounts or these are things that are racking up over months and months and months, but the process also seemed like it was kind of stacked against the tenants. Yeah, yeah. Particularly in Virginia, it, it's really it's really difficult for tenants. You know, uh, in general district court, you know, that's just it's a monster um things move so quickly and uh if you aren't really savvy on the law you can uh, understand the big words that are being used you know in front of you uh you're gonna get run over and in virginia there there's no recording there's no transcript of the general district uh, court proceedings so uh, that's another uh, hindrance towards you from getting any kind of justice if anything uh, unlawful takes place while you're there uh, in eviction proceedings and also so um, in Virginia, you know, being that things run, go, you know, so quickly in general district and, you know, it's very difficult for tenants there. In order for them to appeal in Virginia, you have to pay what's called an appeal bond. And the appeal bond uh, is generally three months rent uh, as they'll schedule your, your case three months out for your appeal. And that bond is kept by the court to uh, pay off the, the winner of the case. So, um Tenants would have to pay three months rent ahead of time within 10 months of the verdict to even uh, have a real shot at justice. Uh, so that's that's another you know thing that's really impactful for uh, particularly people that are low income and particularly in the city of Richmond. It is a lot of a lot of things happen you know with the courts like basically it, it was said in the article she she did illustrate it somewhat when she spoke on the fact that tenants will sometimes are being brought to court and they're not even getting evicted you know but they still get a judgment on their record and the landlord still retains possession of the unit but the tenants never really kicked out. So they're getting like a lot of judgments on their credit or on their court record and whatnot. And then they're actually paying off the amount, you know, so they're not being put out. It's just the courts are kind of being used to threaten them into coming. And if I remember within that lawsuit that came out from RRHA, they at that at some periods of time were counting utilities payments against residents, allegedly, instead of basically calling it as rent, which also was contributing to some of evictions at some point during those two year time frame. I think it's important to at least acknowledge it, this isn't just about delinquent rent. There's a lot of other contributing right. factors that go into some of these things that set people up to be in an unjust situation. Oh, right. I, I've heard, you know, I, I do a lot of work with the tenants, you know, behind the scenes. A lot of residents, they come to me and they say, oh, well, 
you know, these charges are on my account. You know, I don't understand what's going on. They say, you know, I, I, I told them that I lost my job and I was supposed to have my rent recalculated and they're still charging me, you know, rent. I'm actually working with uh, someone who I have to go to her uh, appeal hearing uh, with her uh, in the housing authority in a few days and she's getting her voucher terminated um, and she had, you know, already told them that her... Uh, her income had changed, so it doesn't look like it was processed in a timely manner. So, yeah, things like that. And then what you were saying about um, that was actually, as far as the utilities going in with the rent, that was one of the the complaints that was put into the utility case by uh, in that class action suit that was raised was the fact that utility payments were being included in with the rent. And it was alleged that that was a violation of the Consumer Protection Act of Virginia. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a a lot of a lot of concerns and you know when residents don't know their rights or when even uh rha staff don't really know their you know the rights of tenants this stuff is able to happen i think i've heard more than once um some people at council say one of the big solutions is for rha to follow the laws and rules that are already in place even because some of it comes down to even just mismanagement and like there are protections in place yeah yeah there's there's protections in place and they're not enforced right and i think a lot of it a lot of it has to do with staff not knowing i think but it ultimately is just the the culture of the organization that doesn't make it a requirement for them to have to know mm. those types of things so when when your organization is being led by a direction in the city that is uh more accommodating to development than it is to uh, addressing the the needs or the the quality of life of the the residents, then, you know, this type of stuff will be able to happen. Obviously, there's a lot of different challenges, and I think that there are really, I've heard at least, two big discussions of opinions of what the answer is. One side of it talks about deconcentration of poverty and having people live in more mixed income communities. And then, of course, the other is saying, well, let's build up the communities and let's double down and continue to invest or at least reinvest more and more into the community to help people grow and flourish versus spreading them out across the city. And one of those seems to be a lot louder in the city, right? Mm, (laughs) One of those points of views. Right. Yeah, I think specifically, I mean, I'll say a deconcentration of poverty is one that we hear a lot. You know, even with the previous CEO, he was somebody that worked for prior to RRHA, Better Housing Coalition, which has things that are very good to help people get into homes, but also contributes to deconcentrating poverty. And he was looking at things like choice vouchers was one of his advocacy stances. You can also see when we talk about like recent Style Weekly profiles where they're talking about what they are doing. So what are some of the downsides do you guys think about deconcentration of poverty? Well, I mean, the the biggest thing I see about, you know, the whole theory to me that, you know, moving people around and dispersing them will somehow improve their quality of life. I think it's all based on a false premise, really. I, I think that it's based on correlation versus, you know, causation. Uh-huh. You know, they, they use numbers like they'll say, well, you know, people that live over here in the county, you know, they they're a little more affluent or people that live over here and where there are better schools, you know, they're getting better education and everything. But it's not, that doesn't mean that the people, that they they moved over there to that area and then somehow they became more affluent. 
you know, it's people that people that are affluent <laughs> Sorry, they live in the same neighborhoods, you know. Crossing the neighborhood and I magically right. gain extra yeah, no. money and, well, and right. influence in the, the city. The issue is that deconcentrating poverty, you've, you're not addressing what's creating the poverty in the first place. Right. So just because we pick you up and we move your family to a, a neighborhood that may be more affluent, do you have viable employment? Can you get to that employment? Right. Are you have you now moved into a food desert where you is have your to child, travel? Yeah, is your child being removed from their school and placed in another yeah, school, you which know, may cause that? People. Just because, and I think that's it's that's ridiculous. one of the things that people look at. They're like, well, if we just educate the kids and give the kids a better environment, it'll make everything better. And that may be true, but the mom can't get to work, or the dad can't get to work, or there is no job available, or there's no. Now you've moved them away from their support system. There's right. no babysitter. Uh, this is it, this is a community thing, and the whole reason that we have constant poverty in these areas in Richmond is because they were created. And so if we can work on or attack the systems that created this concentrated poverty, then we can start fixing a solution and just picking up people and transporting them to another place is not going to work. And I think this article touched on that in, in a way there's a map in this article and it talks about a year of judgments, eviction judgments in Richmond. And on the map, you've got each eviction is established by a little dot. And I think the year was 2016. It says 5,803 evictions happened, eviction judgments happened in that year. So just because it was a judgment doesn't mean they were actually evicted. But there's a huge concentration, you know, I mean, it's really blue in mm -hmm. South Richmond and even Manchester is extra blue in East End and North Side, even a little bit close to the West End, near West End, but Bonaire West End is nice and yellow. Right. And so... When you look at that and you think about what that means, just because you move some of those blue dots over closer to the West End, it's the issue of having affordable housing, you know, a viable job, a consistent job. Just because you're moving someone to a job like we talked about earlier, you know, with this bus system that where Richmond is putting a lot of their eggs in one basket on, just because you're taking a bus all the way out to Short Pump, am I going to be able to support my family working at American Eagle, getting minimum wage? Right. I think it's important to even make the correlation that, you know, those, those areas on the map uh, of the evictions that came out in the New York Times article you're talking about, mm -hmm. those same areas, you know, those are the areas that that we've seen on, you know, the map, the, the infamous redlining map that Housing Opportunities Made Equal did a lot of uh, work in unveiling the history of that. But those are the same areas. If you look at them and you, you, you do an overlay of the maps, you'll see that it's all the same areas. You know, the same areas where bus coverage was proposed to be reduced is these same areas that were redlined. the same areas where you'll find a, a high concentration of code enforcement violations. It's the same areas where you'll find reports of street lights out. It's the same areas where people were denied heating resources this past winter. You know, it's the same areas where there's so many disparities. So I think that, like you're saying, we're never really in addressing the underlying issue, which is the economic disparity that was created when people were put into these areas in the city, mm -hmm. you know, and the limited mobility from just the way that the city has, you know, urban areas all across the country, just the way that access to 
employment has become more dispersed. Uh, jobs are more decentralized, and that's never really been accounted for in the city. So, uh, well, it's actually like, you know, all urban areas all across the country that are experiencing uh, low job access and low food access by people that live in the urban areas. So it's something going on all across the country that's never really being addressed. And so if I can kind of just take something also that you kind of mentioned there, you said that these are, are the poverty that's created, and that's created when people were put into these projects. So I mentioned in the intro that in the 1930s, the idea of public housing was kind of going through like a PR campaign almost, where it was being pushed as slum clearance. And in the newspaper articles, you can go back and you can see how these housing locations at the time were really being painted as these are terrible living conditions. Nobody should live here. This isn't fair. So what we should do is completely destroy these communities and build housing instead that's going to be of the standard that is of life that we think is acceptable. So now we fast forward from the 1930s to 2018. Same message, right? And we have the same exact message <laughs> right. where we're saying, you know, these places are in- uninhabitable, like, and kind of ignore, to my feeling, like, we ignore the fact that we created them uninhabitable. We built them so that they were cinder block apartments. Right. And we this said this was the model and this is what's okay for black people in Richmond to live in. I are we doing even, this again? I, I don't even buy that they're uninhabitable. I don't even buy that because, you know, I'm from Richmond and I know that there's several warehouse buildings that were cinder block and brick, True. you know, and that were renovated into quarter million dollar Mm-hmm. condos right on Broad Street, you know, and mm-hmm. it happened all throughout so the city. A better way to put it is like the materials of the time haven't withstood the test of time and have not been replaced. Right, right, So people right. haven't gotten They're, what they're entitled to no as far as... There's been no consistent maintenance yeah. right. on purpose right. you know, so that the, history repeats itself. Right. I don't know if... Maybe that's because there there's no way to funnel enough, you know, money to a developer in that way if you're just renovating. I don't know because, you know, they that's seem to... They seem right. (laughs) That's why. Yeah, but um, no. I I mean, maybe it's not a big enough deal, you know, to yeah. Well, there's not. That's that's the issue. No developer. Not attractive enough (laughs) to developers. No developer wants it because it's not. There's not enough profit or gain being made to be able to do it. Something that's so necessary. I think also we talk about food justice, and that's something that I know you're involved with, Omari. Mm -hmm. And we were at some point we were talking in council about Jim's local market. I believe it was called the grocery store that is supposed to was supposed to go into the East End. And there was uh, another one that they had in Newport News, but then the decision by the, the philanthropers, philanthropers, is that the word I'm looking <laughs> philanthropists? for? Philanthropists. Philanthropists. I, I realized I almost said philanderers, and I'm like, oh, I don't think that's, that's not it. That's, that's, not that's not it, it for sure. That's not it. Ooh. So <laughs> from the philanthropists that were running these, they had to close up shop in the one in Newport News because they weren't making enough money to stay afloat. So some of this come into, you know, where can people make money? And it's not in helping create equitable situations situations for people to even thrive in? That's always right. the case. It's it's never about, almost never about how can I improve this situation or how can I make this situation better? Even though we have hand over foot nonprofits running over top of each other mm-hmm. to solve an issue, but you still end up... Are they solving the issue or are they solving symptoms? They're solving right. symptoms. Right. They're solving right. symptoms. But to them, they're, that's, that's what they see. Yeah. Can we talk about maybe give an example of what a symptom is that people try to solve and maybe how we can trace it back to what's the actual underlying oh, cause. Oh, sure. Let's talk about all of the dollar generals that are popping up. Okay, thank symptom. you. I was about to... That's a huge symptom. I would symptom try to figure out a way to slide yeah. this in to the new, brand new family dollar that's less than a mile away from another family dollar in my neighborhood in the Brooklyn Park, Highland Park area. Yeah, which that's has... Not, where's my fresh food? Where's my neighbor's fresh food? Where are their opportunities a, to get two weeks' desert. worth of groceries to feed their families yeah. in the food desert in a food desert we've been we don't, screaming for? We don't need general dollars in family.
family dollars. We need grocery because, stores you know, with fresh produce. I'm sorry, but Hot Cheetos is not going to sustain a child through a, well, a school day. See, in in my in my belief, food deserts and other disparities are symptoms of the the economics. Mm-hmm. You know, the economic disparity, the, the the disinvestment from the communities, and the lack of opportunity for residents to actually build real wealth. You know, and not just to have access to a job, but opportunities to actually build wealth in their families. Um, so, could we even say that maybe putting a grocery store in at, at, as a nonprofit kind of endeavor right. might be a symptom, whereas maybe having yeah. people to where they're having access to jobs and have jobs that are helping them thrive, you know, it wouldn't, first of all, be as impactful to not have food right there because they could A, drive, or B, there might be developers who are looking to invest more in that community. Well, that's the oh. issue. It's the point that people, like you said, um, Omari, people will choose what they think is profitable in a neighborhood. We can drive down, you know, Chamberlain or Brooklyn Park. We see tons of the same thing over and over again. There's a hair store within three blocks of each other in that area because people have found that that's a profitable area. That's a profitable thing in that area. But nobody thought, man, if I open a grocery store, people will buy groceries. So last month, no, the month of February, the Rose Center for uh, Public Leadership and Land Use came to the city and they were uh, the mayor he's a part of their fellowship and that's where so representatives from the National League of Cities and the Urban Land Institute came to Richmond to help Richmond to deal with a land use issue which our land use issue is the development of Shaco Bottom. So they gave a lot of recommendations for what should be done with Shaco Bottom. And these were, you know, it was a lot of representatives from all over uh, this uh, country, you know, New Orleans, Chicago, Detroit, Utah, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. And they all gave a lot of recommendations to the city and to the mayor specifically as a part of the fellowship. The main takeaways from their recommendations was about more inclusion of the disenfranchised community in development efforts in the city, uh, specifically with Shaco Bottom, uh, and more of everyone being able to gain some kind of progress from economic development projects in the city. What that would look like is when the city does something, for example, when the city gives $500,000 to someone to open a grocery store in the East End, what that looks like is the city makes it intentional that people from the black community or the low-income community in the city of Richmond will have opportunities to not just have a job there as a laborer, but to actually have some type of contracting with a business to get some kind of entrepreneurship, a sense of ownership. That's what that would look like, or that looks like... Doesn't Section 3 under HUD have some provisions where they're supposed to be working to have contracts for minority-owned businesses? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, they they are... um, um, my understanding is that the track record hasn't been good with uh, the housing authority in the city with that, but I, I haven't really like looked into a lot of the specifics of that. I, I hear things from other advocates about it, but I haven't really looked into the specifics of that. There really is, there's not very much intentionality that we see in the city around just equitable development, any type of consideration for that. I, I see a lot of missed opportunities that are occurring where we could actually lift up residents, we can have accelerate businesses. There's all kinds of models where we can incubate the businesses for people. You know, if if there is a, a, 
a woman who lives in public housing that does hair, you know, why are we not creating pathways to for her to learn how to get her LLC or to even to get that kind of support and technical assistance to, you know, get into a salon or something? I, where where is the 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 city's involvement in the cosmetology school or something like that? You know, I mean, I just I feel like there's a lot of opportunities to make things happen, but um, I don't see much being done. I don't know if that's because of a unwillingness to actually affect meaningful change or if it's just like a lack of creativity or or lack of awareness of what the actual obstacles are to overcome for uh, a lot of the residents. I had a thought I was going with somewhere with it. I was just sitting here thinking about all the nonprofits tripping over each other trying to mm-hmm. do the same thing. Oh, that actually, thank you. That actually helped trigger it. So... <laughs> this could be like a triple-edged sword, maybe. I don't know. It could be like a mine, landmine I'm about to walk into. But uh, the Office of Community Wealth Building. You know, this is a, a department that it was an anti-poverty kind of task force originally feel and ultimately became an off- the Office of Community Wealth Building, which it, its intention is to create wealth in, in, in communities. Is but it? Is it? I don't know. That's the stated mission, oh, okay. I guess. I okay. guess I could say a stated mission might okay. be the better thing. So I, I guess you want to kind of explain that. You know, First of all, I know you mentioned things like cosmetology school. And if I recall, things that the Office of Community Wealth Building does is that they have programs for a, a smaller number of residents who are able to get certain kinds of training and, and job training and then have opportunities and job fairs uh, that come out of it. And this is an office that the city has continued to actually increase funding for over the past couple of budget cycles. Um, I believe last budget cycle, there was a small increase and then I can't remember if this budget cycle there's another increase but I think they're redistributing some of that money. So is this something through the Office of Community Wealth Building that how could it be doing more or be better? You know what do you mean when you say is it the mission and purpose? You know what I heard? There was something interesting that was said at the Rose Center presentation. Um, And you know this like I said this is a coalition of leaders in land use from all across the country, from pretty reputable organizations and whatnot. Uh, And they said that the city of Richmond needs an office of equity and inclusion. And I said, wow, that's amazing. You know, and I said, well, you know, I leaned over to my colleague and I said, isn't that what the Office of Community Wealth Building should be doing? You know, maybe, I don't know. You know, and there was something about the the model that they had used and it it looked very similar to the model that the Office of Community Wealth Building was initially set up as, but I think that it ended up getting changed or something. It was under the mayor and it got moved under the uh, someone else or the CAO or something. I I can't remember. But it, it was really interesting, you know, so I think that maybe something like that. And what, like, what would that look like? You know, what were the things that it maybe should have intentioned versus how it's played out? I saw a report, a social enterprise study uh, that the city had done for the Office of Community Wealth Building, and I saw recommendations that said that the whole entrepreneurship piece, the whole social ent- enterprise piece should not be housed at the Office of Community Wealth Building at all. We've been kind of looking at at that recently, or for a while now, actually, but yeah, recently also, and just kind of wondering, like, where are we with that? You know, where where are we with that? You know, and that's that's just back to what I was saying. You know, you're not going to... You're not going to be able to build wealth by getting a job, especially especially if you're in public housing. Yeah, it takes more than that. If you're in, and this is, we were talking about this off of the air, just that that threshold that you would need to 
is a certain income level that you need to to bounce up to very quickly mm-hmm. in order to make it over the hump because once you start making more money in public housing you know your rent goes up you know i know a lot of people in public housing that you know that they come to me with issues and it's very rare that they're paying this fifty dollars or eighty dollars a month in rent that people think that all public housing residents are paying like they they're paying 600 700 800 dollars a month in rent you know if they are employed so um you know that on top of other obstacles with transportation and things like that like i i know people that they try really hard but there's a certain threshold that you're not going to make it over you know unless so you what's get a that lot kind of, of threshold and maybe not like monetarily we don't need to assign like a number to it <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> you know if we can dig more into you know what is the threshold the challenges that when somebody's income does go up to like let's say a minimum wage mm-hmm. which right mm-hmm. now in virginia is not 15 dollars an hour for sure it's no. not enough right. what happens when someone gets that much but doesn't bounce up all the way to where they need to be well i mean you make when you make more money if you're if you're extremely low income in the city if your income goes up you're going to get less all kinds of benefits are going to be less for you food stamps you know insurance is going to go up and uh, your uh, housing subsidy is going to be less uh, and there's not much of a income. grace period right uh I, I don't think it's longer than two months yeah <laughs> yeah so um you so know, not usually enough time to have like even a couple checks necessarily coming in before you might be hit with some of these financial right and, changes and, and part of the reason that i do advocacy around the three areas that i spoke on uh, housing transportation and food is because those are the three topics expenditures of a household. So uh, there is a trade-off that occurs when the cost of one of those resources goes up, you have less access to the other one. While while you're getting a new job and your income's going up, your rent's going up, your food stamps are decreasing so that your, your, your access to food is actually decreasing because now you have to pay more money for your food. So at, And at the same time, now you have a job that you have to get to, so your transportation costs are going up, you know, yep. so, so yeah. It's um, it's really difficult. A sliding scale. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really balancing act. Yeah, it's a sliding scale. It's I mean I don't know if you can even put a dollar amount to it because I guess every case is is different. But I mean you think about you bump up like you said to even just a minimum wage job and you've got all those other things in the mix. But if you're getting help with childcare or now you're working, you will need childcare because you're not at home. Mm-hmm. That's another cost. Exactly. That's another cost that... Well, and some people, I mean, even if they are able to say, you know, run their household income where they do have a bounce up amount, you know, there still has to be time for them to do things like repair their credit. Or if they have evictions on their record or they don't have a good enough credit, they still can't get outside of of public housing locations, which is where then you find people paying eight, nine hundred market value Mm -hmm. for an apartment. It's it's a lot. So it's that's what I'm saying. Just picking somebody up out of public housing and moving them to a different area is not going to solve the problem that's solving a symptom of poverty and right. that's not to me it seems it. like it's an easy answer yeah well it sounds good well, because it, yeah, it, it, it sounds, sounds, sounds easy magical for the people good, who have yeah. to right. it's not easy yeah. for the people to go through it though it's no. an easy hey i'm not in the middle of this that sounds good well, let's do it's that just like i mean the results with the i guess the city's first poverty deconcentration effort um in blackwell those residents that were there their their quality of life didn't improve after the remodeling it was a very small percentage of the residents who actually were allowed to even return 
return to the newly remodeled places, but uh, most of the residents, I think like 45% were just dispersed to other Mm. housing projects in the city, and um, I think like a third of them were pushed out to Henrico, like 13% in Chesterfield. I thought it was interesting when we were at the Valentine event talking about housing and equity, and I think they mentioned that there was a number in an old RTD article Mm -hmm. about saying, oh yeah, this number of of apartments are going to be built, and this number of people actually need housing and are basically going to go without. So Mm -hmm. in these ideas of, we can see in the past where the idea was, let's clear this land and let's build something. It it wasn't built to be enough for people, first of all, or everybody. And now fast forward, we've seen in Blackwell, where people were not allowed to be able to go back. I've heard some cases it was partially because they ran a background check, which they hadn't been doing in however long, or they were forced to go through these different processes, and then they weren't allowed back. So it doesn't seem like these things have helped people by treating the symptom. Well, and then, I mean, just the nature of a poverty deconcentration model of of remodeling uh, a neighborhood, you aren't, by definition, you, you can't allow everyone to come back in. Otherwise, that's that's who's benefiting from that. If you were allow them, then that would really be some intentionality towards improving their quality of life, but that's not really what they're going for because the idea is to use private dollars to do it. So they get private developers to come in and fund all of the work because they're expecting a return on it. That's that's the reason that most of the, the units end up being market rate and they just allow a certain percentage to come back. back. Yeah. What I'm really hearing here, I think, is that we need to, when we're talking about solutions and fixes, listen a lot more to residents and having them not just listen to, but involved in the decision-making and advocacy for themselves and helping with economic economic empowerment. I know every project housing area has a tenant council and they all have presidents of tenant council. Right. And they're part of the Richmond Tenants Organization who spoke at city council. Right. So when we're talking about fighting the myths and stereotypes about people who live in public housing, are there different voices and are there ones that are more positive towards it than others? And like, what are the differences here? God bless those women. That's those women of the Richmond Tenant Organization. You know, they they mean very well, and a lot of them do a lot of good work. And with the the strategies that they use for outreach in their respective complex, they they really do try. I I feel that there's there's really a real lack of participation from a lot of the residents uh, on those tenant councils. And I'm not saying anything that they wouldn't tell you. You know, already they they would tell you about the challenges that they have towards with their outreach or getting more engagement from uh, the residents. And I think that when you have as, as as much effort as the, the members of the tenant organization, Richmond Tenant Organization, put forth, it, this is an it's a the face of public housing has changed since they were originally, you know, put on those bodies. A lot of them have been on there for a very long time, and they they don't really they're the demographics of the the members of that organization don't really look similar to what the demographics of the communities are a representative yeah they a lot of them are are unable to engage the the younger members of the community in an effective way to advocate better for them and we're living in the information age now and we have the internet and things like that there's a lot of information out there about the rights that are available for tenants things that me and the other 
other advocates have been farming tenants about as far as their rights, their federal HUD rights and things like that. Simply, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have had as much access to this information. And when you're in part of an organization within the Housing Authority and whatnot, that's not really uh, accommodating to the expanding the education of the residents or, you know, making them aware of their rights and everything or empowering them to, to take more control or to be involved in the operations of the Housing Authority, that's going to be more difficult for you when when that's just not the culture of the organization. And Omar, what I want to leave off is how, how can people help, really? People who are on the outside and... Lord knows everybody in Richmond is well-intentioned. But what is something that people can really get behind and and do to facilitate helping the situation? I think that there is this perception that the public housing is like a separate part of the city, these communities, they are really socioeconomically excluded. No one really, when we talk about public housing, even the residents of public housing themselves have been trained to think of themselves as being separated from the city. We went to a, a meeting one day uh, at the Housing Authority, their Board of Commissioners meeting, and one of the residents who we had been advocating for said, Said you, she was frustrated because the housing authority hadn't told her certain things that were going on in the community, and she didn't hear about it until we told her. And mm. she said that we shouldn't have people from the outside coming in and telling us this. And at the time, I lived like a block away from her, and I wasn't very far from her, but the perception of her was that he lives outside of this this complex that I live in. And, and he knows you know, more about it than what you do. Right, right, but... It just, it kind of hurt she didn't feel that we were all neighbors because of the way that public housing is treated in the city. So I think that that, just recognizing that we all are in this community together, we all are part of Richmond, and what's good for the least of us is good for all of us. And the whole the whole idea that we would need to move people away from neighborhoods to improve their quality of life rather than to address their immediate needs right now. I, I just think that that's kind of, that's, it's kind of, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know how, how to call it. Um, I don't want to, you know, it's paint someone. Right, right. Yeah. I, I just, I don't want to villainize anyone. Um, oh, I, I just did what you did. Not villainize, vilify, right? Um, but yeah, no, I mean, we, we, we kinda, make up words all the time. Right, right. right. No, we kind of got some negative feedback about our last campaign to change the leadership in the housing authority. And so I, I don't want to try to vilify anyone again, put anyone on in a in their bikinis or anything on memes and stuff, you know, people. Well, you know what? Sometimes it takes a little heat to get things done. Oh, no pun intended, right? We do Bingo. need some heat in the house. Exactly. Authority. So, but I'm just saying, whatever, good for the goose is good for the gander. Absolutely. Thank you very much for coming on with us today, and thank you for everything that you're doing in every community in Richmond. We really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. And if anybody wants to get in touch with Omari, how could we get contact with you? You can contact me through leadersofthenewsouth.org or uh, my uh, social media, Leaders of the New South, um, on Twitter. Leaders of the New South Community Council for Housing, that's on Facebook. That's where uh, most of the content for social justice uh, issues in the city of Richmond are found. Well, thank you so much for joining us and educating our listeners on um, the housing situation here in Richmond. 
This is Omari El Qaddafi, and you're listening to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond. Next up, we have a little treat for you. Our Quick and Dirty City Council Roundup module that normally airs on open source RVA on Fridays at noon after city council meetings. We recorded it live last night at Stir Crazy in Northside. So I hope you enjoy the raw, uncut, unfiltered, quick and dirty city council roundup live. We do two shows on WRIR. Uh, What we're recording tonight is our module that normally plays on Fridays at noon uh, after city council meetings on Christie's show, Open Source RVA. Um, Without her, I would have zero editing skills, so thank you, madam. She does a great job making this sound like a good government all the inner workings because it's super boring we understand that so we try to educate and entertain a little bit of edutainment um, what do you like to on the fly I know I'm not like a Sarah Palin or something <laughs> go ahead and say anything before we get into the practice session I think I think they should get the tone I mean we're all very high energy so hopefully everybody will be super high energy we're gonna mess this up a lot sure which that's why you should know Christy is amazing if you've heard this before or you decide to hear it tomorrow because um, it's going to brand new air tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to actually air within our one hour show municipal mania tomorrow, a little outside of what we normally are into. Yeah. So, okay, are we ready to practice, guys? Let's practice some. You guys are going to be our sound effects. Very normally very on this segment, we have sound effects. So, let's do a little practice and then we're going to get into it. And if it gets messed up, so what? That's the fun of it, right? Right. We also cough a lot, so. Yeah. to help honor 911 operations. 
operators with supercalifragilistic extra long name for a week in April to recognize them. There were a bunch of uniformed public safety and emergency services employees up at the podium, so you know City Councilwoman 8th District Reba Trammell was gonna crawl up into her feelings and give a rambling, yet still heartfelt, speech on the importance of first responders. Indeed she did, but was a little less enthusiastic about Richmond Public Library Week, which we're kind of oddly excited about. Recognition was given to the director of our public libraries and pictures were taken. Reading is fundamental, y'all, and our hardworking librarians deserve a round of applause. We had a brief RBA mayor sighting, but he was out of there before the meat of the meeting. The <laughs> Next, we steeled ourselves for what we anticipated to be a lit public comment period. The Richmond Tenants Organization, a group of resident council presidents from public housing, packed the public comment period. Marilyn Olds led the group and stated that their purpose was to be the true advocates for public housing residents and threw a little low-key shade at the activists working to improve the lives of the lowest earning citizens. Council to come visit them and inform the audience that life in RRHA housing isn't as bad as it's made out to be, that RRHA has been a good partner with the RTO, and if there are problems in the courts, then the residents should be addressing it with the tenant council presidents instead of these outside groups and advocates stirring the pot and making it sound like life in the courts is unhealthy and sad. After Miss Olds was a parade of tenant council presidents introducing themselves, and that's about it. I think we were prepared for some powerful speechifying, telling us what the real needs of public housing residents are, but that's not what we got. Maybe we shouldn't have read too much into their stated purpose of identifying Richmond Tenants Organization. Wah, wah. That is what they said they were going to do, and that is precisely the only thing the group did. So thank you, Marilyn Olds, Patricia Wilford, Patrice Shelton, Bian Voidy, Audrey Tech, Debbie Wilkes, and Cynthia Vaughn for identifying yourselves as the authority on public housing in Richmond. And yeah, we look forward to the day when you come to council with some solutions for the problems facing the residents living in concentrated poverty. Consent agenda focused mainly on SUPs, that's special use permit for those not in the know for short-term rentals, think like an Airbnb. So it turns out we have folks renting their properties out for short-term leases, but there's no real regulations in place to govern these newfangled residences. We have a developer who would like to build some Airbnb-centric buildings, hence the SUPs. The properties in question are the second and fourth districts. So Councilwoman Kim Gray and Councilwoman Kim Christ Kristen Larson <laughs> would like these favors to pass. Please and thank you very much. And then, this will give us time to figure out regulations while those properties are being developed. Opposition to these papers brought out the grumpy old men and one community advocate, Omari Al-Qaddafi, of Leaders of the New South. He expresses concerns over the lack of housing for the extremely low-income folks. This new development has no requirement for housing choice vouchers. He said that we don't separate public housing from the rest of the community. His advocacy is for the empowerment of all residents. Next up, a gentleman who owns what is currently a parking lot that he is planning to turn into his words, very high-end retail condos for purchase. 
He's very nervous about the garbage and tomfoolery generated by the riffraff that such short-term rentals will bring to the city. <gasps> Another gentleman was worried about the stability of his neighborhood if an Airbnb hotel were to set up in a building that is quite literally at the edge of his backyard. Again, more concerns about riffraff and possible encroaching on his freedom to live. <gasps> when the developer in question stepped up to the podium, he expressed his befuddlement at the complaints because he had been speaking regularly with both complainants and neither voiced these concerns to him. <gasps> because of these concerns, Reva caught feelings again, melodramatically implored her colleagues to listen to her wisdom and decided to motion for a continuance which only the 5th District's Parker Agilasto and President Chris Procedural Fumble Hilbert, aka Schulbert, supported. After a bunch of confusion, Kim Gray offered to mediate and address resident concerns and made her case for why these SUPs must go through. Reva, once again, felt the need to pontificate, this time on her love and support for her sister friend, Kim Gray. She said that Kim must know better than what was going on, so she changed her tune and voted with the pack. Parker and Chili Chi. I always throw these in here for her to mess her up. Parker and Chili C dissented, but this was a foregone conclusion. The SUPs passed. Welcome to Richmond Airbnb Hotels. We'll figure out your regulations, I'm sure, sometime. There was no regular agenda for the third meeting in a row, so we moved right on into expedited papers and announcements at a breezy pace. Andreas Addison of the 1st District has a brand spanking new liaison in Nicole Williams. And he let us all know that he was greeted by harpists at his town hall meeting. Huh? Huh? Uh, that's weird, right? That's weird, right? Only in the 1st District, folks. They were RPS kids and it makes it any better. Most everyone has district and civic association meetings this month, but of most importance to Reva is taking her announcement time to pester city attorney Alan Jackson, not the Chattahoochee guy. <laughs> this is a habit. This time about FOIA requests and what would happen if she needed an attorney. Could it be him? And poor Mr. Jackson, once again, patiently walked a slightly overwrought Reva through the legalities of her question, the answer to which it seemed she did not fully comprehend. There's nothing new here. Oh, and don't worry, she still had time to implore us all to get hunky firemen to install free smoke detectors in our homes. Somehow, we magically made it through the meeting without a procedural hiccup from old Chilbert. He did, however, slip and call Parker Agilesto Mr. President, signaling to, us <laughs> signaling to us that he knows what we've been screaming since January 2017. Parker would make an excellent president of council. In all, despite all the feelings involved, it was a rather tame meeting. We rate this meeting two sad free smoke detectors just waiting for you to call your local fire station and claim them. Thanks for joining us once again, and to continue the conversation, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. What's our name? R.J. Kurt. Thank you. Thank you all for your participation.
here's a little supplemental bit from Omari Al-Qaddafi, our guest this week on the Richmond Tenants Organization. Just a little bit of interesting info for you to close out the show. Yeah, um, another interesting thing about the RTO and uh, the redevelopment plans and at the Housing Authority is the, the, the Creighton development, which is a part of a greater plan that the Housing Authority put in uh, in their annual agency plan for the demolishing of uh, all of the big six uh, complexes of public housing in the city. Uh, the RTO signs off on the annual agency plan, uh, and that is how housing authorities are able to fulfill their requirements to have the tenants participate in the developments, and that's a part of the whole 964 uh, rights stuff. So the RTO signed off on version of the document, version of the annual agency plan that didn't have anything about demolishing Creighton and didn't have anything about demolishing any of the public housing complex, and that was, I think, in June and of last year. And so then in July, there was this retreat, a property management retreat that happened where they normally would have a property management meeting, but they had this retreat over uh, in someone in one of the lawyers' offices, and it lasted all day. And uh, there was some they were, at this retreat. They talked about the rad development and demolishing uh, public housing and how, how that will work and everything. So the very next month after that, a new annual agency plan came out, and that one was signed into uh, was voted into their their regulations and whatnot. So the that one does not, that updated version, it doesn't even have any of the RTO signatures on it. So they didn't see the plan that's right now calling for the demolition of Creighton. And, and mm. why that's interesting to me is that a lot of the residents and a lot of the officers on certain tenant councils have kind of expressed this, this helplessness or lack of ability to even have any say-so in the development or inability to say, hey, no, I don't want to move. I actually want you to improve the community right here. It's like mm-hmm. people don't even know that they have that option. When the culture of the organization is just that tenants don't have any options, that you do what we tell you to do, that's why you'll have uh, RTO signing off on something with not even putting any comments in it. It's just interesting to me that a a, a large document that is about your own community and the plans that are for it, that there wouldn't, you wouldn't have not one comment for it when this is like a it's almost like no alternatives were presented like it's like a de facto hey you know this is what we're presented so or maybe you just think you come here and you sign the document right you know maybe you think that's your role you know and you're not even aware that you really actually are supposed to have a say so in that but yeah um i mean it's kind of interesting to me though that the fact that there can be an annual agency plan that's calling for demolishing and remodeling efforts and whatnot but the tenants haven't signed off on it yeah, that's a that's interesting. Uh, interesting information there. Messy. I have no response. I know, right? Unfortunately, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, all you can really say is that this is just very indicative of the systemic and years old mismanagement, the lack of helping people get the resources, being able to advocate for themselves, which now, you know, when we talk about how antiquated maybe some of the RTOs, like the tenants organizations might be because they aren't helping people in the avenues that they're engaging where maybe that might be the social media side of things and you know getting information and the word out and modernizing some of these processes so that people are able to have a voice right and it's not that it's their fault it's just that they may not know right 
Right. That's part of the issue. Mm-hmm. So you have the and blind continuing to lead the blind because they're not getting the information they need. They don't know where to get it from. And then you have tenants that show up like the young lady that's it's like, why is this person from the perceived outside coming right. to tell me about something about my neighborhood mm-hmm. and I'm not getting this information from the person that has accepted responsibility for being able to disseminate this information to I mean, me. who's been put in charge? Like, not even just accepted responsibility, but yeah. these are the people that have been chosen. Right, chosen. Yeah. And, and I'm not even just speaking necessarily about the, the Tenants Council organization in this right. case. I'm talking even at, at large. Yeah. The RRHA board, right. the people who are, are working in the office. Like, to me, this is very indicative of such a bigger issue where there's so many layers of people that of things that just need to be addressed for residents to get what they deserve which is a voice in what happens to them also right and and I don't want to make it like I'm just dogging the housing authority because we have been in conversations with um, a few of them you know in, in recent months that you know seem to be uh, there seems to be a willingness for them to kind of change the culture and to to learn about the rights of the tenants and also to empower the the tenants to uh, also advocate for themselves so um, much of what i'm speaking about is issues that have been ongoing you know and you know just criticizing things in the past tense of things that have happened and have gotten everything to where it is today you know that that isn't to go without saying that there is still hope and there are still people who are there today that are actually trying to improve things going forward right Mm -hmm. It's a lot of baggage to kind of dissect and talk about and put into context, though. Yeah, but there are ongoing challenges, you know. Mm -hmm. We're trying to work through them with them, though. We hope you've enjoyed this very special edition of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond. As always, if you'd like to start or continue a conversation with us, hit us up at RVA Dirt on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next Wednesday at 11 a.m., folks, stay dirty. Stay dirty.